If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. <laughs> Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll be hearing from the classicist Professor Mary Beard. Tonight, which is the 3rd of February, Mary is presenting a new programme, The Shock of the Nude. Airing on BBC Two at 9pm, it's the first of a two-part series. BBC World History's editor Matt Elton interviewed Mary to find out more about how nudity has inspired artists and shocked critics throughout the history of Western art. Then they were joined by art historian Yanina Ramirez to discuss three particularly divisive works. Please be aware that the conversation contains some explicit content. So your new series is called The Shock of the Nude. Uh, What inspired you to make this particular programme on this subject? I think we were all, and that's the people who commissioned it, and and me, um, and the director, we were looking for a, a subject in the history of art that people really wanted to kind of argue about that still made people cross or puzzled or take very, very different views. I mean, an awful lot of, of art history is somehow comes down to admiration. And here was a subject where you could see there were controversies. And so it was fun to try and unpick what those controversies were were and how we might resolve them. Hmm. And um, some of your comments have caused a bit of a stir. Um, you said, I believe, that female nudes in Western art are soft porn for the elite dressed up in a classical guise. Uh, I don't think I quite said that. OK, OK. <laughs> I mean, w- when those things get reported, they, uh, they get cruder and cruder the, the further they go down the food chain. I think what I said, I can't remember the exact words, is that you've got to face the question of that, uh, of whether nudes are soft porn for the elite. And, you know, in a way what I was thinking was, you know, committed gallery goers tend to be terribly sniffy when they hear someone say, you know, oh, this is just soft porn for the elite, isn't it? And, you know, I can be sniffy about that too, but I think it's a question that 
that you really have to answer or you have to ask. Yes. I'm not yes. sure what, you know, there isn't an answer, is there? But I think you do have to look at this and think, so what is the difference between this and soft porn? And uh, that comes over very clearly in one of the the paintings that we feature in uh, in the first episode, which is Courbet's Origin of the World, which is a very detailed, hyper-realistic painting of a woman's genitals, and she doesn't have a head and she doesn't have any limbs. And you think, why is it? How do we explain why? This is in a gallery and in, is a masterpiece, where are similar photographs of that we'd much more likely find in a, a, in a, a, a not wholly salubrious shop. And, and I think that there, there isn't, you know, when it comes to the human body, there isn't a strict divide. It, you know, porn or art is partly in the eye of the beholder. But I think it was very interesting looking at this painting, which has been extremely controversial, and it now hangs very much in a, in a very kind of proud place in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. And it was interesting thinking about all the ways that we have of convincing ourselves that a painting like that is art. You know, so it's in a very elaborate gilded frame, which says masterpiece. Right? Yeah. Um, it's called the origin of the world, which gives it a kind of sort of high level mysticism. And even the Musée d'Orsay's own website talks about you know, the use and the sophistication of the use of colour, stops it being pornography. And, you know, all those things are in, in a way true, but... What I think that shows is just how, how difficult the boundary is mm. between uh, art and porn. And I, I've been very surprised at the vehemence of the reaction, even, even to the kind of rather crude, semi-accurate quotes of what I said, how really violent people get when they're confronted with the difficulty of that distinction. And in a way, justifies the programme, I think. You know, we kind of, you know, looking at some of the responses on Twitter, you think, blimey, you need a programme which actually investigates some of these issues because people are really not just sounding off, that's fine. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're threatening me. You know, I think she needs to be punched every day you know, for, for saying that there might be a problem about the difference between art and porn. I mean, you think, wow, yeah. why is this so difficult? Something your programme uh, illustrates really strongly is that this has always been contentious. This has always been a subject that's got people animated and angry. Um, you open with a 4th century BC statue, for instance. What was that statue and what reaction did that cause? Oh, it's what we believe to be the first full-sized sculpture of a female nude in the West, certainly in Greece, but probably the West. And it's a, a very puzzling piece. It was made in the early 4th century BC. We've got no idea why, after centuries of representing women clothed, uh, the sculptor Praxiteles chose to do this uh, sculpture of the goddess Aphrodite uh, in the nude. What we do know is it was instantly quite difficult for people. Um, the, the, first, the first clients he offered it to said, no, thank you, I'm not taking that. Um, uh, it then ended up being taken by the city of Knidos in what is now Turkey. Uh, and they kind of turned lucky in a way because it became a huge 
slightly notorious tourist attraction. You know, they, they put it, you know, they put it on the ancient equivalent of fridge magnets. You know, they, we went on coins and on lamps and and everything. But there is, there's a whole lot of kind of background stories told about it, which shows you very clearly how how difficult it was for people. And there's one um, famous incident that's described a couple of centuries later. Um, about a young man, story of a young man who falls in love with the statue and manages to get locked up with her in the temple. And then he tries to, well, you know, sleep with her is probably a bit too coy and rape her is probably a bit too extreme. Uh, Have his way with her is what kind of books usually say. Um, And he then, he does that. He leaves, apparently, the mark of his seed on on her thigh and then he goes off and he throws himself off a cliff and I mean I think often people read that story or classicists read that story it's not it's not exactly a well-known you know story throughout the world and they say oh it's kind of it's not odd you know it's yes and it is it is an odd story but really it is a story about how this provokes human desire you know so when you say look um, one thing about the nude is that it is implicated in male gaze, the female nude, or sometimes the male nude. Uh, it's implicated in the male gaze and male desire. People tend to think that's a sort of invention of some radical 1960s and 70s feminists. That idea that what art does is provoke sex goes right back to the very, very origin of the Western female nude. Why for so long was the nude a female nude? I don't think it really was for so long a female nude. Um, Because, I mean, the the historical truth about this is although the female nude was the nude that caused anxiety, there had been male nudes long before that in the Greek world. Early Greek sculpture back to the 7th century BC of men is very often, about usually, naked. And I think what you see there is a really puzzling difference between the representation of the male body and the female body. And in some way, the male body in the classical world wasn't much, I'm sure it was in part, but it wasn't much associated with desire. It was associated with virtue, um, with good citizenship, you know, that you saw the virtue of the classical citizen in the virtue of their naked body. And you didn't see that in women. Women weren't active citizens. They didn't have any political rights. And their body was quite different. So you've got two very different strands of appreciation there. And I think it's it's really quite striking how now um, probably the male nude, at least on places like television, you know, what you can and cannot show of the male body is probably more restricted than the female body. And this, I think, would have amazed the classical Greeks. Why do you think that is? I think it's a, a almost, almost all these why questions are impossible to give any simple answer to. I mean, there is something about um, the way that Christianity at some level changed, uh, undermined that sense that 
the, the, the naked male body, genitals and all, was a symbol of citizenly goodness. <laughs> and so it kind of brought, once the, that version of how you understood the male nude had, it had gone into abeyance, it became also much more associated with sex and desire. And you can see that in Michelangelo's David, you know, now again, one of the, you know, the modern equivalent of the Aphrodite of Canidos in being, you know, the, the fridge magnet version of, in this case, a male nude. And, you know, people now, me included, you know, we flock in our millions to see it. Uh, when it first went up in the public square in Florence, Michelangelo, in many ways, was trying, I think, to recapture some idea of the, the sense of the classical body being a version of citizenly virtue. Um, but the citizens of Florence didn't think that. <laughs> and they, they pelted it, they threw things at it, and within, within a few weeks... Um, they'd fitted a little belt with some low-hanging leaves from it in order to disguise its genitals. And it had a, it had a, its genitals were covered up till the very end of the 19th century. Mm. Um, sticking with the theme of gender, because that really interests me, the idea that I think you say that for so long men got away with this. It was, it was male buyers, it was male commissioners. Um, there's that painting, and I'm going to say this name wrong, by Johann Zaffany? Zoffany. Zoffany. Um, which I wonder if you can describe for us, because I thought it was really interesting. It is one of the most amazing paintings that we looked at in, in the whole series. Um, is this painting by Zoffany of a gallery in the Uffizi Museum in, in Florence. And for me, it's a, an interesting painting because it reveals not only the raunchiness of people's association with these nudes, but also it shows Zoffany, you know, being very well aware about what's going on. You know, you know, he also knows exactly about the male gaze and male desire. And what it is, is it, it's this internal gallery where, the, you know, the really greatest masterpieces went in the Uffizi uh, uh, in the 18th century. And it's absolutely packed full of men. Now, we know that women went into this gallery because we've got descriptions of them saying what they thought about it. What often he's done is put it only men, and he's almost every man there, whether it's um, in terms of homoeroticism or heterosexuality, is engaged in leering in some way as a sculpture. Uh, or a painting. And you, uh, one bit of it's packed full with lovely kind of detailed scenes of the way these blokes are, um, are looking at, are looking at this, the works of art. But there's a wonderful classical sculpture, what's now known as the Venus de Medici. It's very like um, the first classical nude by Praxiteles. Um, and you look at them and you suddenly see there's one guy there who's kind of peering at her with a magnifying glass. And the other blokes around the back um, looking up her bum, actually. And you think, you know, what Zoffany is outing here is that very fragile boundary between, you know, love and sex and, oh, the love of art. You know, so all these, you know, relatively well-heeled, largely British travellers to Florence are there gawping at the nude. And as I say, I love it because it's another example of how 
uh, people have known this you know, for centuries. It's not, you know, it's not a new discovery to say that um, nudes prompt male desire. Zoffany yeah. <laughs> got there a long time ago. <laughs> um, can looking at non-Western art cultures help understand why Western art is so fascinated by the nude or seems to be? I think looking at non-Western cultures puts Western culture very much into perspective and you might almost say puts it in its place. Um, We decided not to do a complete world tour of naked bodies in art. And that's not because there aren't the most amazing and wonderful representations of the naked human body in almost almost every culture you can find across the planet. What we felt very strongly was that there wasn't another culture uh, which quite obsessed about uh, the naked body and its sexuality in the way that Western culture since the ancient Greeks have done. And, you know, I think if you, you think about it, it's... You know, we we sit here and we assume it's that the basic central bit of art training for young artists will be to draw the naked body. We think that that's absolutely that that, that is that is what art training is centred on. And one of the things we wanted to do, and we show a little bit of this in the first episode, is that if you look at other cultures' versions of this. A, they're not doing that. They're not kind of, you know, what they would say about us, I think. It's kind of weirdly fascinated by it. But they're using the naked body in a way that is much less, uh, much less sexualized, much less fetishized. We look at a a wonderful Yoruba headdress from Nigeria um, with a, you know, tremendous... uh, naked female at the centre of it. And what's very clear is that this is you know, this is a headdress which is celebrating community, it's celebrating women's role at the centre of the community, um, and it's really significantly different from most of the way the ways the West has treated the female nude. Now, why that's... You know, that's another of those big why questions. Why the West has gone down this route, I think it's very difficult to say. But I think it's it's quite important, actually, as a first step, to show people that it has gone down a route that, from the outside, doesn't look so obvious and natural as it does to us. I believe the second programme, which is on next week, um, explores the ways in which, considering the nude makes us consider how we see ourselves as humans more generally. Um, how, how did you go about doing that? That sounds like quite a big subject. Well, I think what we wanted to do was to say, look, we have very strange boundaries about what we think counts as a nude. Um, and it, that still very much sits, not entirely, but it very much sits within uh, a essentially classical form. And we want to say, look, there's all sorts of other naked bodies that maybe we have to put back into the category of the nude. And we start very near the beginning of the programme with the body of Jesus. Because actually, if you think about, um, you know, Western urban culture, the place you see 
naked bodies prey on sometimes sometimes it's more often than anywhere else apart from an art gallery and even there sometimes um is in churches you know that the the crucified jesus is usually not absolutely naked but effectively naked and yet we we don't talk about the nude jesus very very occasionally you might be slightly odd talk about the naked jesus and so it was quite interesting to explore why we thought Jesus hasn't come into the category of the nude. And what happens, actually, if you look at him with, you know, a sense that you could see him as a nude. And we look at some amazing Michelangelo drawings that are in the British Museum with Neil McGregor, who used to be the director there. And he's very clear that... You know, one of the bodies that has been most crucial and formative in the way the West has thought about uh, nakedness and nudity is Jesus' body. And, of course, it has. Because if you have a religion whose central paradox is God-made man, you have to say, so in what sense and how far is Jesus man? And how far is Jesus a sexual being? And there are some extraordinary drawings in which you can see, um, well, yeah, let's not put too fine a point on it. There's not much doubt that Jesus has got an erection. Um, and so that's important, actually. That isn't, you know, that's not smutty. That's an important way of saying, yes, Jesus was a man in every sense of the word of being a man. Some of these anxieties are timeless, in a sense. And then there's others that may have been reframed recently in things in terms of the Me Too debate, in terms of gender binaries breaking down. Do you think this is a chance for us to re-understand news in terms of 21st century identities? When we were very much in the planning stages of the programme... Uh, John T. Claypole, who's the head of BBC Arts, said to us very firmly... Um, I want to know why we're making a programme about the nude now. What's different? Uh, And that proved to be a very important interjection because it it made us think a bit harder. And very quickly, obviously, I think, we thought, right, OK, we're in a, a, a moment in which binary gender, different forms of sexuality are being increasingly challenged. That's that in some way must be framing the naked body uh, in, a, in a very different way. And I suppose I thought to myself that we might, we might end up concluding that in a, a gender-fluid, non-binary world, the nude perhaps had had its day, you know, because most nudes, not all nudes, but most nudes in the kind of mainstream Western tradition have been jolly well binary. Um, but the more we explored with um, people in the trans community and other people working on, you know, different versions of gender, the more we found that there was a huge enthusiasm not to kind of get rid of the nude but to rewrite the nude and to make it speak differently. And uh, one of the most moving interviews that we do is uh, with someone who's a a trans model, and they speak very powerfully 
about the importance of seeing the trans body in the history of nudity. And so I, I, I came away much really to my surprise, thinking that maybe um, new and more radical views about gender might be uh, just what the nude in art needed rather than being about to kill it off. Um. Are there any other interviews or experiences you had making the documentary that stand out for you particularly? Oh, almost every single one. I I think one that uh, is kind of unforgettable for me actually comes from the first episode. Um, And it's going to see uh, Artemisia Gentileschi's painting of Susanna and the Elders in Burley House, uh, a, a painting which is about the prelude to sexual violence. And it was memorable because we could get up so close to it. And paintings are always very... Um, they become more edgy when you get very near them. Uh, and, but here it really prompted, I think, some important points about how women represent uh, the nude and sexual violence uh, to themselves when they're artists. Uh, and... In the case of Artemisia Gentileschi, and she's going to be the subject of a big exhibition in London soon, which would be amazing, I think. You know, Artemisia Gentileschi is notoriously the victim herself of rape. And seeing a painting of a woman who is being assaulted, basically, um, uh, by somebody who has been raped... Is uh, makes you rethink, you know, partly, yeah, okay, in the light of me too, but uh, in all kinds of ways, you know, the nature of what it is to represent the naked female body. And uh, to wonder whether, I think quite difficultly, you know, we can't get the... I can't, certainly, get the, the fact that, that Artemisia herself had been raped. That's part of my understanding of those paintings. But there was also a sense in somehow that I had to have another... I had to learn to look at it with different eyes too. You know, that that Artemisia can't go through the whole of history being a painter whose only mode is to represent the outrage at the violence done against herself, important as that might be. And so to think about how, how you could see those paintings of hers both inside and outside a narrative of rape or for that matter how you look at you know Titian's most famous nude I suppose the Venus of Urbino and the question that we raise there is okay if you see it as the male gaze part of part of that um that relationship between viewer and painting well, okay, that's fine, and I think right in part. But where does it leave me? You know, I, I enjoy this painting. So, how does a woman enjoy these paintings? Uh, because I think for me, uh, part of the experience of making the program was I got to like the nude more. You might have thought that you'd end up liking it less after a, you know, a, a fairly kind of consistent diet of, of what you can imagine, um, you know, over several months. But I found myself warming to it in a way that I hadn't expected. And to try to think, right, I'm going to position myself. I have to find a place for me in this encounter. 
Um, and I suppose I put myself you know, in the in the position of the female model, and I thought, what is it? You know, you know, there's a bit of female solidarity here. You know, I I I am here with the Venus of Urbino, and you know, actually, we shouldn't be taking the male gaze quite as seriously as sometimes we do, and maybe we ought to be laughing just like Zoffany at the guys who are leering at us. Which leads nicely into my last question, really, which is what um, new ways of seeing or questions would you like people to have as a result of watching the documentary? Um, I haven't got any one in particular. I'd like like them to recognise the difficulties that they have with this this medium and this genre, which we're often kind of encouraged not to look at. You know, we're encouraged to take the nude a bit for granted, even though we know it's controversial in all kinds of ways. And I'd like us to examine what we think we're doing in looking at it. I don't want to stop people looking at nudes. I've got absolutely no interest in that whatsoever. But I want them to... And when I say I want them, I mean also I want me to just be a bit more kind of quizzical about what's going on when we do that and wonder why and how we let some people look at some things and not others you know what does it matter if there's a fig leaf on it or not you know what are we saying about ourselves you know and what are we saying about ourselves when we think um you know that there are some bodies which we don't feel very happy about or have not traditionally felt happy about being represented. What happens when we bring that back into to the nude? Can we can we start to think about this in a way that possibly, you know, there's only very small hope here, but possibly make us think about you know modern preoccupy modern preoccupations with a very normalised body image. Um, you know, maybe there was a, an article in a newspaper recently which said, you know, actually getting teenagers to do life drawing was very good because they actually saw what a real body was like. The, and, and they looked at it and they had to look at it hard, which hadn't been photoshopped into perfection. So there's those kind of issues. But, you know, just look, look again. That's what I want people to do. That was my conversation with Mary Beard, We were then joined by art historian Yanina Ramirez, who chatted with Mary about some of the specific artworks explored in the series. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mary, I'm so excited to be here talking with you on the eve of launching your beautiful new series, Shock of the Nude, out to the world. And for BBC History magazine, we're going to talk a little bit. Uh, me with my art historian hat I'm on. Like, that's, that's a bit ah, scary. Well, no, I won't scare you with it. It's not a big pointy hat. It's a good hat. And I wanted to ask you about three particular artworks that pop up in the series and why you think they're important, why we should be looking at them afresh with new eyes. So, first of all, one that I know is close to your heart, the Aphrodite of Knidos. Now, you've been looking at her for a long time. <laughs> I'm very tactful. Of I've been looking at her for about 50 years. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and in those 50 years, has the way you've looked at her or thought about her changed? Yeah, I think it has. Um, you know, I think when I was, you know, when I was a young classicist, you know... Like most people, you know, I thought that uh, you know, a lineup of nudes going back to the Aphrodite of Canidos, the first nude that we know to have been made uh, in the Greek world, you know, I thought they were pretty dull, actually, let's face it. You know, and you, you go into museums, you know, particularly museums in the Mediterranean where they've got lots of them, mm. and you see them all against the wall and you see people totally understandably just walking past them. Mm. You know, they, because we haven't relearned, I think, how to find them interesting. Yeah, we we go almost marble blind yes. in the face of yeah, all of is. that. Yeah, and uh, what is really exciting for me, and I, I suppose it took about another twenty years after I was a student <laughs> first um, looking at this sculpture, was to see that it was really, really kind of edgy, controversial. You know, it was the first time I realised that stuff that I think is classic in every sense of the word, you know, actually could be dangerous and mm. difficult. And, and, of course, you know, it's rejected, it's not necessarily embraced by everyone at the time. You know, you, know, you think, you think, oh, everybody in the ancient world must have liked this. No, they didn't. Mm. When uh, Praxiteles did this thing first, um, the first town he offered it to said, not on, not on your <laughs> nelly, mate. I'm not having a... You know, this is the first full-size naked statue of a woman stroke goddess. Not having that, thank you very much. Um, uh, you know, give us a clothed one, darling, please. <laughs> uh, so, uh, in the end, the kind of people of Canidos, who are sort of a bit further down the feed chain in Praxiteles' <laughs> customer list, um, took it. Uh, but they hit really lucky because, although it remained being controversial in, in actually very, very vivid ways. Um, it also became a notorious tourist attraction. You know, mm. So, you know, the, the tourist industry at Canidos, this little town on the coast of what's now Turkey, boomed with people coming to see the first 
nude. Like everybody rushing into the Louvre and skipping past everything to get to the Mona Lisa. That's they had right. their own Mona Lisa. Yeah. But there is something so intriguing about the sculpture because, and again, I think this sort of feeds into what you're picking away at in the series. She is naked, as in she has no clothes on, but it's something else than that, isn't it? It's supposed to be a sort of timeless nakedness of the nude. And and she, she conceals yet reveals, doesn't she? Yeah, she's a very naughty sculpture, really, <laughs> because um, she looks as if she's being a little bit modest. Mm. You know, she's got her hands over her breasts mm. and she's got by her side um, a, a kind of towel, I suppose, yes. and a water pot. So that really it's to I think to give the viewer an excuse to look at her you know that you don't you can't look at a woman or a goddess just like that you you have to imagine that you've just surprised her as she was having her bath like Diana in the hunt you know the idea of peeping at her and and in a way then that's where we start to get into this problem of the female nude in particular but nude bodies more generally how complicit are we in the looking and if we think about an artwork like Corbet's Origin of the World that is purely a woman's private parts Mm. on display the even the angling there's no head it is the (laughs) lowermost body it's all about Um, uh, you know and if you look at um, you know standard definitions of pornography I mean I don't think there is ever any good definition of pornography but if you look at what people say make something pornographic it's that you have no personality all you've got is the genitals you don't have a head you don't have a face you're not engaging with this person you're just seeing it as sexual organs and in every way on that kind of definition Courbet's origin of the world looks like a piece of porn absolutely and yet it is treated now, and, and to some extent for me, has become is. You know, let's admit it, I'm not, you know, when I look at it, I, um, I, I enjoy, I actually enjoy looking at it, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, but it's become a piece of art. It is a piece of art. And yet it's a piece of art that you can see everybody is terribly being very careful to remind you that it's art, you know? Yeah, when they talk about all oh, the, the wonderful use of mustard and brush strokes. I mean, it's, the, you know, the, the website of the museum tells you that it's not pornography because of the, the nice colours. And you think, that you know, this is... I mean, I, I, you know, I can see where they're coming from, but it's desperate. And they put it in this gilded frame, yeah. which, you know, and it's the kind of frame that, it, that you don't put pornography in you know this is the kind of frame that masterpieces go in and uh, i mean i think also we don't know who gave it the title i mean we've got no idea the title that's the thing isn't it because as soon as you title something you're leading the 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 viewer down a route and and it's such a huge all-encompassing title isn't it it says women's genitals are mystical absolutely all life originates here (laughs) and you know one of the things we explore you know very briefly or throw out in the program is saying let's try giving it a different title and it starts to look a bit different. I love that. Call it Jeanette's Jeanette Pussy. <laughs> and uh, then it, it's it's instantly changed in significance. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's been wonderfully um, controversial in the Musée d'Orsay. And there was there is, I mean, people can find this online very easily. There's a wonderful street artist who came down um, from outside somewhere and sits in front of it in the Musée d'Orsay and then she lifts her skirt up, reveals her genitals and 
And then, of course, what happens <laughs> is that, although they do have a sort of smile on their faces, the people in the room are very amused at this, <laughs> but the guards, the custodians, have been told to go and remove her. <laughs> so so, so there, there is a woman... Uh, a real one, yes, <laughs> whose genitals you can't actually see as clearly <laughs> as the one in the painting, is being removed from the gallery when behind oh. her is this really detailed... Super close-up, uh, Maxie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I assumed that what she was doing was trying to point up the irony of this. And it is ironic. And actually, this leads me on to what my third artwork, which I wanted to talk about, which is about removal. You know, at what point do we remove things because we deem them to be inappropriate? And in the series, you feature Waterhouse's Nymphs. And it's a beautiful pre-Raphaelite painting. I think it's gorgeously done. But it was very controversially removed from display in Manchester yeah. Gallery. Now, yeah. how... What you know, what's the, the big thorny issue behind all this? Well, Mary? there's a sad story of complete misrepresentation mm. in this, I think. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pre-Raphaelite painting of a young man who is about to be lured to his, we assume, death by a, a group of bare-breasted, barely pubescent water nymphs. I mean, they do look extraordinarily young. Without a doubt, they look like 13, 14-year-old girls. And it caused a huge scandal quite recently because the artist Sonia Boyce came and did an, uh, an intervention installation in which she removed water houses, high and the nymphs. And all hell broke out. Um, you know, amongst art critics who should have known better, honestly, you know, saying, this is censorship, this is Hitler started this way. I war. know, are we going to be burning books, books next, next? was one right. of the comments yeah. I saw, yeah. yeah. And actually, what Boyce never intended, the removal of this painting, no. to be permanent. What she intended to do was make an intervention which was actually intended to make us look harder at the painting. There's something kind of nicely paradoxical that you think harder about something if it's taken down. Absolutely. And that is, in a way, what happened. But with real kind of, um, you know, sort of fulminescences of, of journalistic outrage. Mm. And, I mean, I think what she was trying to say is, look, just notice what this picture is of. She's not trying to take it down forever. She's trying to say, notice that it's a group of um, uh, young women, very young women, you know, as it were enticing mm. this relatively innocent, we suppose. Man, think about what that's saying. And uh, the, the reaction was... I mean, it was very stupid, actually, in a lot of the press. The reaction in Manchester, where it was in Manchester Art Gallery that this happened, was actually much more interesting because... She had loads of post-it notes mm. and had people writing their responses to not seeing the painting. Yes. And they were much, much more nuanced than, than most, the press of, most of the commentary. But, but I think that's what's so interesting. It started a discussion, and it's a discussion, I love it in the series when you look at the post-it notes and explore you know, each person's response. There is so much more we could talk about, Mary, but I only had 10 minutes with you. I think we've covered a lot. We have oh, more we have. to talk thank about. You. Thank you, Nina. But for now, thank you for talking art with me. That was Mary Beard. You can watch The Shock of the Nude on BBC Two at 9pm tonight, Monday the 3rd of February. And if you've already missed it, it will also be available on BBC iPlayer. For more on the ancient world and art history in general, head to our website, historyextra.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. 
Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Our next podcast will be released on Wednesday when I'll be speaking to John Hardman about Marie Antoinette. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.